C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood Hello and welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth I'm the Resident Youth and I'm joined here by a panel of esteemed guests of my first panel. This is very exciting. Um, and I'm hoping we can start by going around the room and everyone can introduce themselves and um, to cement yourself in what generation you're in, if you could say what year you were born and then a fun fact about yourself, maybe where you went to school or what you're doing now or something off the wall. Who knows? Who wants to start? I'll start. Jackson wants to start. My name is uh, Brother Jackson Yergi. <laughs> I was born in June 6th of 1996. Uh, what makes me... You're a millennial. Uh, millennial, yes. And a fun fact about myself, I love to go skiing with my family. Wow, great. I'm Marianne Yergi, and I am Madeline's mom. What well, year you, were you born? In 1965. <laughs> <laughs> I am on the cusp of the Gen X, as my husband affectionately likes to call it, the slacker generation. Fun fact about myself, I am an empty nester. I just celebrated my 25th anniversary. I am happily married, despite appearances to my husband. Go. Excellent. My name is John Yerge. I'm single, born in 1961. I'm officially a boomer. Uh, and a fun fact, uh, I want to get to know the lady next to me who <laughs> says she's happily married. Wow. Great. I'm Emily. Okay. Yeah. I'm Emily. I was born in 1981, so apparently a millennial, um, but on the cusp. And a fun fact, that's a tough one. Um, I'm a mom. I have two little baby boys. Two nuggets. Yes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mark. I'm Madeline's uncle. I was born in 1973, so I guess that makes me a Gen X, which I just found out is a is known as the slacker generation, which... Uh, Somewhat derogatory. It is. I thought that that was the moniker for the millennial generation, mm. but uh, I guess not. Uh, fun fact, I'm married to Emily, and uh, we live in Boulder, Colorado, yeah. and... We've taken um, the studio on the road. Yeah. yeah. We're all in Colorado. That's great. So we're doing something a little different than what we've normally done with sort of one-on-one interviews. So I asked everyone to put either a question or a topic in the bowl here, and we're going to pick them at random. We don't know what others put in the bowl. I don't know what's in here, but I'm picking them in case I need to screen them on the fly. Um, and then we can have a lively discussion. So... Mix them up. Take this one. This says, who is the leader of the millennial generation? That's a good one. A lot of people say Lena Dunham. Oh. I disagree with that. I think you guys Groans need to go back and pick a better leader. <laughs> right. Do we have any Do suggestions? Have any suggestions? I have no idea who this Lena Dunham character is. <laughs> Wouldn't she be on the cusp, too? Is she, how old is she? She looks like I she's I think she's like 30. 40. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Shots fired. Right. 
I don't know. I mean, the leader of the slackers is Kurt Cobain. Only the, the like the day after he killed himself, right? right. He was the self-proclaimed leader. I don't know. Who's the leader of the boomers, would you say? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to go with Ronald Reagan. He was not a boomer. But he, he did, he he did wonders generation. for our generation, right? He was the greatest generation. Right. Of the boomers? Yeah. Probably, it's got to be someone who's in your also, generation. Probably like Steve Jobs or somebody like that. I mean, he was, huh. he was a boomer. Um, you know. I wonder Buffett, what year was he born? Would he be a, a Gen old. X? Huh? Is Steve Jobs a boomer? I feel like he would be in his 50s. Yeah. I can relate to that. Warren Buffett, that would be a good one. I think Uh, he's he's a boomer. He might be a little old. Maybe a little too old. It's interesting. uh, That question uh, makes you think about who who leads your generation, regardless Mm -hmm. of what your age. Yeah. Right. Interesting. What does this one say? Greek life at universities. This is a very big topic. Oh. So, <laughs> is that a topic or is it a question? What was it? It's a topic. Just Greek yeah. life at universities. Oh, okay. We have some people that were They're in Greek life. I was. Mm-hmm. They are for good reason or not? No, for I think it's terrible. For frivolous, think... ridiculous reasons. Why so, are they so I'm currently a brother. Currently a senior at Indiana University, and um, and you know honestly, like I think hazing is such a loose term. You know, like nowadays, you know, you could practically constitute anything as hazing. You know, like mowing the lawn, shoveling <laughs> snow on your driveway. That's considered hazing nowadays. But then, you know, like Indiana is now suspended for r- ridiculous reasons. O- OSU, Michigan. I don't know. It's getting I think I think um, fraternities need to redefine themselves quickly or they will be extinct yeah harvard just sororities too certain sororities too but i think the greek system um is under assault who has it out for them um the universities the parents well i think the Hmm. parents i think the number of sensational cases and they're all valid i mean kids drinking themselves to death being being forced to drink um there's just a kid that died at michigan state i think that people need also need to focus on the positive parts of Greek life. Yes, philanthropy. The social aspects of Greek life and all of the brotherhood and sisterhood activities and your lifelong friendships that you develop at these sororities and fraternities are missed in all of these national news stories Mm -hmm. because you have these sensational stories and you don't, I mean, these... You don't hear about any of the good things that happen. I mean, after you're out of college and these lifelong friendships you have and the support system you get out of these fraternities and sororities, that is lost. Well, and doesn't it have the sensationalist stories and the focus on the negative? Doesn't it have something to do with the demographics of fraternities and sororities? I mean, they're largely, if you talk, most of the negative attention focuses on fraternities and most fraternity members are white men. And let's face it, white men are under assault in this country right now. I mean, it's probably the least popular group in the country. And the one that can be openly criticized, um, and I think fraternities have become like the poster child for the group that's most out of favor with liberals who are controlling the narrative. I think that's fair. 
Yeah. I really think that fraternities, you know, like people have been saying nowadays, like fraternities kill people, but I really think that, you know, people kill people, you know, like the, like every individual's personal decisions, you know, contributes to the factor of like, sure. all I these mean, pledges mm-hmm. like dying. They've nowadays, been doing all know, these studies. Harvard's, yeah. yeah. Harvard's been doing a lot of work to ban their single gender organizations and they've mm-hmm. cut because of the finals clubs and the fraternities mostly, but they've expanded it to, you know, like the women's poetry club and sororities and all this stuff, which is very interesting, but they've done studies that there's no more sexual assault happening in the fraternity houses than in the dorms really. Mm -hmm. So even the things that they're saying that they're trying to prevent are not really true by their own statistics a lot of the times. So I think that's really interesting, but Harvard, my sorority just said that they're not participating anymore. And so if it's happening at Harvard, they're the thought leader, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I'd be surprised if it lasted in its current form through to the next generation, wow. the next 10 to 15 years. I think it's going to look that's what, that's different. What I mean, they have to redefine themselves or they're going to be extinct. Yeah. Maybe they should define themselves as a safe space. <laughs> and uh, that might be the best way to preserve. I mean, a lot of them have. They're some of the only organizations where you can discriminate so to speak, based on gender. And there's been a lot of case law about that, you know, not having to accept, you know, because they're private clubs, you don't have to accept people for any reason, Mm -hmm. really. So that protection might go away in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. All right, next topic. This says, free speech is under assault. Why aren't we fiercely defending all speech? Why aren't we? I feel like everyone is at this table, right? I don't know. I mean, this is a podcast. Anyone could do this. I'm putting this up on the internet for free. You know, obviously I bought all the equipment, but it's not a very big barrier to entry to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if you highlight things that are going on in your community, you can be labeled as racist just because you are talking about what's really happening. But do you think that's bringing it back to the millennial topic do you think that's because of how millennials react or do you think that's just the political climate that we're in why do you think that is different now than it was 30 years ago let's say i think well it goes to bringing it back to the millennial topic i think people are so politically correct and i think millennials have been brought up in those environments in their Mm -hmm. households that they can't recognize reality when it's right in front of them. And you can't talk about what's really going on in your world, in your community, in your colleges, in your workplace, because everybody wants to be so concerned about everybody else's feelings, but you're not addressing the real issues. Well, Well, yeah, and you've got um, some recent polls out that show that among millennials, um, valuing free speech is significantly in decline. So you take a university like Cal Berkeley, which was the, you know, the start of the free speech movement in the 1960s. Now, if you have an unpopular speaker come through, they shut it down through violence and feel completely justified in doing so under the guise that unpopular opinions, you know, are labeled as hate speech, whether they're actually hate speech or not, and are categorized at the same level as violence. And therefore, violence can be shut down with violence. And so 
Um, it's very clear that free speech is not valued by millennials the way that it was by prior generations. I don't. I don't think it's being taught properly. Mm-hmm. I think. I think the kids today are getting a dose of one-sided free speech, almost thought thought control type free speech. Well, what percentage of faculty members at all the major universities do you think are um, would be characterized as liberal? I mean, it has to be north of 90%. And so you have a tremendous group thing going on where the people doing the teaching don't actually believe in values like free speech. And the, the generation that's coming up is getting you know, 90 to 95% of the ideology from <clears throat> these liberal faculty members. And students are afraid to challenge any of these folks because they fear reprisals. And they hide it. Yeah. I did that at the University of Michigan. Right. When you were writing papers, you knew that you had a liberal professor. Right. and you So that's been going on for generations. That not, that's, it's maybe worse now. But. It is worse now because I think that there was a value of free speech on the campuses when I was going to college in the eight, early 80s that you know, the protests and the diag at Michigan and all of that stuff was, you know, expected. Your kids could do protests and talk about things that they upset them. But the college Republicans were well and good and they were on the student council, the student MSA. But that's not going on anymore. I really don't think it's anything but left protests are going on. Has anyone here had any experience, like personal experiences with a millennial that you think, because I think all that we've talked about is kind of these either like news stories or kind of macro level, you know, college campuses, but has, I'm interested in seeing if it's filtering down into the interpersonal relationships, like talking with millennials in the workplace or people that you've come across where you can see this lack of free speech or trying to shut down ideas in action or not so much. I see looks of puzzled, <laughs> puzzled faces. I just think it's interesting because I think a lot of the talk about millennials yeah. is very high level and I, I don't see it as much in the interpersonal relationships. Well, I mean, in a work structure, you know, typically, you know, your hierarchy is based on seniority and, and age and experience, right? So you've got, you know, sort of, boomers running the companies and millennials working for them. So, you know, the idea that you're going to get sort of an open dialogue at work is kind of difficult because you're not going to express your thoughts to your boss who may have a totally different view. Uh, I think it becomes difficult to to sort of have those kind of conversations at work. Right. Just my experience. Which is an assault on free speech all on its own. (laughs) Corporate lack of free speech, but that's a topic for another time. Picking another one. Let's see. This says sexual harassment amongst the celebrity demographic. Wow. We're picking all, no one's putting in anything, uh, anything light. Wow. (laughs) I like it. These are all great topics. These are things that we haven't discussed. The sign of the times. Yeah. Again, I don't know if that's necessarily like a millennial thing. It's very zeitgeisty. And I guess. No, by the sounds of what you read in the papers and, and here on the news, it's the millennials are being the ones that are attacked. And it's the boomers <laughs> that are assaulted. <laughs> yeah, by the boomers, right? These old guys that uh, can't control themselves. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily any worse now than it was. I, I think it's been going on since men and women have been in the same room. Um, I just think now it's, it's, has, it's having a moment, as they say, right? It's gone on before. It'll probably go on after. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe there'll be more you know, sensitivity. It's like, it was like drunk driving. I mean, I don't want to make them sound like they're the same, but drunk driving was a, looked upon as a sort of a, a crime that, you know, if nobody, like a got, functional if nobody hazard. got hurt, it was a nuisance. Uh, the cops didn't, wouldn't charge people. I'm talking back in the seventies when people got pulled over and drunk and were obviously drunk uh, until people started getting killed and, and mothers against drunk driving came along and they made it a big social issue. And now the laws have tightened up and 30 years later, right? You, I mean, you guys should know you're the millennials that lived through it. Uh, they've really tightened up the drinking laws and, and very oppressive Almost results. more so. Right. right. So I think, you know, this this moment with sexual assault could end up that way too. That now what I think is taken a little more seriously. People can speak up and, and maybe, uh, and maybe, you know, there'll be a better result, maybe better behavior. What I think is interesting is that corporate America is way ahead of Hollywood on this issue. Because in corporate America, they started, there were the lawsuits early in the 80s, 70s and 80s, the seminal, you know, sexual harassment lawsuits. And then all the policies got put in place. And so corporate America gets rid of people lickety split when they have complaints against people in this workplace. They have training, they have policies. And all of that goes on. Yeah, I think in Hollywood. That's been going on for decades. Well, I think, I think, I think, uh, I'll, if I could help. I agree. Corporate America is way ahead. Uh, celebrity America is way behind. Government America is way behind. Way, way behind. Right. I, I say celebrity because that you know NBC is a corporation, but the whole Matt Lauer. If you read, he was you a believe, step above the. Yeah, he was a step above. He was the rainmaker of that division. They looked differently, you know, about his actions. Charlie Rose. Um, you know, Harvey Weinstein owned his own company, basically, right? So th- these guys were a different form of corporate America. I think it's interesting um, what you were saying, the analogy to the drunk driving, because I think the backlash on the drunk driving has gone the other direction for millennials, where now if you get caught with a six-pack your freshman, your first week of freshman year at Michigan State, which happened to my friends, and you're on probation for two years and you can't leave the state and, you know, that impacts it, internships it, and stuff, do you think that... Do you have a fear of that happening with sexual assault, or do you think that the backlash oh, against think, drunk driving is a I problem? I think even? sexual assault allegations are going to be just as hurtful, if you will, as as a, a misdemeanor. You know, had a six pack or whatever your example was, right? I think I think the whole. Do you think that's I don't a say good thing? false accusations, but mistakes? people will it'll 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 go the other way for a while, where allegations will mean more than. Maybe what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Well, luckily, we have police that have to do investigations, and so not all sexual assault allegations will end up in crimes. You know. Right, but my point is, have we learned nothing from the drunk driving thing? It sounds like we haven't. It sounds like everyone's kind of resigned themselves to the fact that it's going to be the same thing. Again, any new thing that kind of breaks through, there's there's no room for nuance. It's just black and white, and I think people are also not very concerned about uh like young people who get caught up in the justice system for stupid things 
and I don't think that's very publicized how damaging it is when you have something like that on your record from a young age. And I think that there's a lot that's going to happen with these young guys. Like you were saying, if the allegation means more than the investigation, that ruins your life. And it seems like people have just resigned themselves that that's the way it's going to go. Well, it probably has to do with the fact that this wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been for a long period of time. And so there's a bit of a catch-up going on. You've, you've had some high-profile um, folks in the media industry essentially saying, I think it was the editor of Vogue or of Teen Vogue saying, look, if some innocent people essentially have their lives and their careers destroyed, um, that's just a necessary yeah. byproduct a utilitarian of, approach for sure. of clearing this up. You know, what I think is interesting is that um, the slowest industries to kind of come to grips with this are essentially Hollywood, um, the movie music industry and the media industry. Um, and over the last decade, those are the very industries that have been doing um, all of the virtue signaling have essentially been holding themselves out as the moral authority. And you have the most aberrant behavior coming to light and none of it was a secret. So all of the stuff going on with Harvey Weinstein and Russell Simmons and, and, and Matt Lauer were kind of the worst kept secrets in those respective industries where everybody knew that it was going on and nobody did anything about it. And now everybody's acting absolutely shocked and horrified that it was actually happening. It's like the famous scene in the movie Casablanca where the <laughs> constable came in and was like acting shocked that there was gambling going on. And that's what's happening here. And so I think that for some period of time, while there's this catch up going on, people are going to be at risk that these accusations will be used as weapons. And right now, an accusation is essentially the same thing as being tried and convicted by a jury. And so I think that we're going to be going through that for some period of time um, until the pendulum swings back to the middle, which is probably where it needs to end up. Sure. Great. Next topic. I'm vetoing that. So is a Jackson. <laughs> um, oh, this is good. Another heavy topic that we haven't touched too much about. A little bit. So Shay, the co-host of this podcast, she graduated from college in 2008 and basically couldn't get a job at all and ended up moving home. And she ended up getting a job in LA. And that's been like, I think the story for a lot of the millennials who are now in their late 20s, early 30s, they have those memories of trying to get a job in the worst economy of our lifetime. And so this topic is the job economy for post-undergraduates. How do we feel? Do we think it's getting better? I think that's a bit, that's the biggest criticism of millennials, right? Is that they're lazy. They're all moving home with their parents. They can't get a job. They don't know the value of hard work. One of the things we talked about is that millennials have never seen a vibrant economy because when they were in high school, adults in college, they didn't see the 80s and how the economy was really juiced and really going well. And so we're hoping in the next decade that you'll see that and you'll benefit from that. Yeah, when I, when I, I was born in 1961, so I was a teenager in the mid-70s, which was a period of high inflation, high unemployment, sort of stagnant economy. <clears throat> and when Reagan was elected... Um, you know, he went in with a 
a different attitude and got the Congress to do a big tax cut in the mid-80s, and the economy took off um, and really carried the nation, I would say, until the early 2000s, you know, mid-2000s. Um, so, you know, we've seen that, I've seen that. Then I lived through 10 years of sort of stagnant economy again, where we were very low growth. And now we've got uh, President Trump who has championed another tax cut. And I'm really hopeful, as Marianne said, that it juices the economy, gets, gets some expansion in the economy, and there's opportunity for millennials to see that. And, and, wow. and tie it to that action, because I think that's important to understand uh, how that works. So we're very hopeful on the eve yeah. of this tax uh, signing by Trump. Sure. So I have to play devil's advocate because I'm the host. Do you think that's enough? Most millennials, I'm on the younger end, so most millennials are in their early 30s. Do you think if they've seen the stagnant economy their whole adult lives that by the time they're 40 maybe they're going to start to see a little bit more don't you think that's too late for them it's more so for the kids that are in high school now that it'll really be juiced up for them I think everyone benefits from an expanded economy there are more jobs there are better jobs and higher paying jobs and wages go up so I think anybody who's working especially older millennials will benefit from that I mean, you can't, I, unfortunately, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate the period of time you're born in, right? I mean, you're born in certain periods of time. If you look at, you know, the people that fought World War II, their sons fought in Vietnam. I mean, it seemed to stay with the, sort of that same, that same pattern. Uh, and maybe even the Vietnam uh, folks, uh, their sons fought in Kuwait and, and uh, uh, Afghanistan and some of the things we're doing now. So... Um, if you're fortunate to miss that cycle, great. Uh, if, you, if it's unfortunate, if you miss a boom in the economy, right? Um, I was 18, right when the right when Reagan took office. So when I came out of college, after watching double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment, um, and uh, double double double-digit um, uh, mortgage rates. So, you know, they used, to, they used to call it the misery index if you added the unemployment number to the inflation number to the mortgage rate number. And it was upwards of 23, 24% for all four or three of those measures. Um, if you think about that today, you know, mortgages are 3.5%, mm-hmm. inflation's under 4 um, um, and, and, you know, what's, in, what's inflation? Less than 2 right. yeah. I mean, Those numbers add up to about 8 I mean, just to put it in perspective, <clears throat> like out of my close friends that I graduated high school with I'm like one of the only ones that has like a full-time job that provides health care and paid time off like one of probably three or four people and I don't think people realize that and I grew up in a upper middle class suburb it's not like you know what the kids in Detroit are facing right that to me is the salient thing that people are trying to get upward mobility and upward sorts of employment with college degrees. These are not like, you know, low functioning people and they just can't do it. Some of it has to do with hunger though, because of all the reasons that John said that he experienced a boom cycle during the Reagan years and then beyond. He's an example of a parent of all the people that you just mentioned. 
And so the children of those folks have had, um, you know, essentially everything taken care of for them. And so, I, you know, I don't know that the, the people, your peers are as hungry, for, for example, as John's peers were when he was coming up. So to answer your original question about, you know, are there going to be opportunities for the older millennials? I think, you know, in a booming economy, a, a rising tide raises all ships. So sure, on a absolutely, macro level. There, there would be. But also, if you look at over the course of, a, of, of one's, call it 35 year professional life cycle, you know, on average, folks are probably going to experience two boom cycles and two bust cycles because the economy is cyclical. So it's a little bit of a cop-out to kind of say, oh, well, I might, I'd miss this boom period because plenty of people hustled and did really well between 2008 and call it 2016, even though technically we weren't in a, a boom period. Now, probably, you know, the indicators are that over the next five years, we, the economy might be growing at a much higher rate. So there's greater opportunity. Everybody will have a better chance to participate in that. But over the course of a 35-year professional life cycle, folks are probably going to have the same number of ups and the same number of downs. So what's going to determine who actually makes the most of it is, you know, ambition, hustle, drive, determination, hunger. And if you've got folks that have their parents essentially providing everything for them and they're not hungry and they're not determined and they can, you know, for, you know, to use a cliche, they can sleep in their parents' basement and it's okay. Well, I, I think that probably explains why so many of the people that are your peers aren't don't have full-time jobs more so than macroeconomic cycles. Right. I think it's definitely individual, but I think, I think what you described definitely is part of it, but I think it's also just the place that you live in. If there just aren't jobs for what you studied or you weren't at the top of your class in the eighties or nineties, you might've been able to sneak into a nice corporation and be able to grow there. And a lot of people don't mature until their mid twenties and there's a lot of people who are now running corporations who are like that, who were, you know, to use a vulgar term, fuck ups in college who, you know, did things that now get you sent to jail and kicked out of college. If you even managed to graduate and you had marginal grades and didn't have the opportunity to have an internship, like there's no room for those people anymore. Those opportunities are gone. And I think that's something well, I would well, like well, to see come back. And there's a whole slew of college majors out there that, I mean, you could rattle off, you know, I, I'm a little far away from kind of the current kaleidoscope of oh, college yeah. I mean, majors, there's but there's probably a bunch ones. that are absolutely useless sure. that no responsible university should be handing out, no responsible student should be taking, and they're graduating with degrees that have absolutely zero market value. They're not sellable. And I think that's a big that's part of the problem, part too. Of it. Yeah, and I think, I think the cycles that Mark talked about... When, when corporations are down and not hiring and shrinking and whatever because of economic climate or whatever it may be, uh, I think that drives people into being entrepreneurs and other sort of self-starter type opportunities. With this boom coming, you're going to have to try to attract those people back into the corporate world because there's going to be, if, if the economy does expand, there will be a, you know, a, a war on talent trying to find people who can fill these jobs. 
And if you're off, you know, running your own business, you'll have a choice to make. Um, it's going to be an interesting cycle if, if everything takes off the way I anticipated. I lived through it once. Marianne lived through it once. Um, it's exciting. I think, though, you're right in the sense that when we were getting out of college, jobs were plenty. Yeah. And people with English degrees got good jobs in corporate America. Which people that got general studies degrees. That's something that your generation <laughs> right. created that doesn't exist anymore. No, but that's true. But oh, the, well, the general studies degree in our time is the crazy degree that Mark talked about in your time. They just put labels on it, right? Basically, a general studies degree in Michigan was you went to college right. for four years. But my point is the people with the general right. studies degrees of the boomer generation are now you know, executives at major corporations. The general studies majors of my time are living at home with their parents and can't make rent. For the time being. Well, I mean, back during the boomer generation, a college degree was actually a distinguishing factor in getting a job. As things have evolved, and essentially the entire population that wants to go to college now can go to college, a college degree in and of itself is not a distinguishing enough factor to to get you right. a job. So you have to distinguish, distinguish yourself in other ways. Um, but I don't think that there are fewer jobs today than there were 25 years ago. In fact, I think empirically speaking, there are more jobs today than there were then. Um, and so it's just a matter of who's filling them um, and who's distinguishing themselves to do so. Are, are millennials maybe just trying to be more selective do they feel like they have the luxury to be more selective than, say, 25 years ago? Or even when I, you know, I graduated college in, what, 2003? Um, I didn't feel like I could be selective. I, right. you know, chose whatever entry-level job I could get. But I didn't also feel like I could go back and live with my parents. Yeah. Like, I just had too much pride for that. I could have, but I didn't want to. I think it's so, also like people have an image of millennials as being upper class right. people, and that's a very small percentage of the generation. And even people that go to college are not necessarily, you know, they might, I think the people at the upper class, like people that like went to NYU, like, yeah, I can afford to be selective. Absolutely. But the people that went to, you know, their local community college, right. who 20 years ago could get a job easily in their town those people are the ones that are left out in the cold, I think. Well, I want to touch on a point that Mark made that, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, a college degree was a, you know, a distinction. Um, you know, not everyone went to college and there were jobs for everybody back then. Um, now we've, we've convinced ourselves that having a college degree is for everyone. And I think that's, going to prove to be a huge mistake for a lot of people, particularly millennials who have taken on a ton of debt, yeah, it's a problem. studied at some, you know, half accredited institution and got a degree in something that they can't even explain to their future employer. Um, I think it's, been, it's a shame what we've, what we've convinced ourselves as a society is important, uh, that everyone has a college degree when not everyone needs one. Um, and can go out and make good money if they got a trade or a skill or something else that fit who they are. 
Mm -hmm. Well, and this goes to certain jobs having the perception of being beneath this generation. So, you know, I I would submit that at least one third of the universities out there should go away. Mm -hmm. That degrees from at least one third of universities out there that are charging, you know, good tuition dollars um, for students to attend should just be eliminated. And yet, at the same time, we, we hear cries for there to be more universities um, and for college to be free to anybody that wants to go. And meanwhile, we have a shortage of trade professionals. Welders, plumbers, electricians, carpenters. Who, by the way, now are good trades professionals make over six figures a year. Um, these are professional folks that that do good work, that work hard, and these are not menial jobs, but they've developed the reputation for being beneath folks that go to college. And so I think that essentially too many people are going to college getting worthless degrees and getting saddled with debt and aren't interested in taking some of these other high paying jobs where there's a real need. Um, and unfortunately, I don't see that correcting itself um, when you have the momentum politically that's actually pushing in the other direction um, for some reason that's, you know, to me, defies logic and common sense. Yeah, I think that's fair. Let's see what else we have in here. Now oh, we already touched upon that. Someone put in a repeat. Oh, this is a good one. Where are the conservative millennials? Hmm. I think they're everywhere. There's a lot of studies that show that maybe not politically, maybe not in the, you know, MAGA Trump <laughs> way, but millennials act more conservative than Gen X and certainly the boomers. Really? They do less drugs. They're less promiscuous. Hmm. Those to me are, you know, small C conservative <laughs> things to do. Right. There's a lot of studies that in certain parts of the countries, they're more religious than their parents, which has never happened in the history of this country. So I think they're everywhere. They're just not, you know, waving a flag around. They've been kowtowed into the closet where I think they're afraid to speak up and to voice any conservative ideas. So it's encouraging to hear that they're um, pursuing conservative values. But I think they're deathly afraid to voice conservative values because I think the left um, is holding all the blowhorns and anytime that they hear any opinion that they disagree with um, i.e. anything from the right um, they become um, uh, you know, extremely vocal and I, I would say bullying to the point where I think young people that have conservative values won't speak up Um, And they're doing so behind closed doors because they're afraid to do so publicly. Right. So how do you develop that? Like how do you how do you identify them? You mean or how do you foster community? How do do the how do millennials really develop these um, these conservative values? If it's like you're saying, it's, it's being bullied and. You know, it's not being fostered or celebrated. Well, oh, and I'm sure there's some people that are listening to this podcast that will be absolutely shocked to hear that we're talking about people on the left doing the bullying. Right. Because they've conveniently accused people on the right of doing the bullying. Right. 
But the reality is all you have to do is look at who's holding all the microphones and all the blowhorns. And 98% of them are on the left. And so I, I think it is a very valid question, I think, for the future of the country, which is, you know, how are young people going to feel comfortable voicing their opinions without getting shouted down by the groupthink that's holding all the blowhorns? I think a lot of it, to answer Emily's question, I think it's, you know, the way people obviously present publicly is not always the way that they present right. privately with their friends and family. I think a lot of people are getting it from family. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, not every college campus necessarily shouts down all young people's ideas. Like, you know, Jackson, you have friends that have worked on conservative mm -hmm. campaigns very publicly and openly, and those people are not, you know, laughed out of town. Mm -hmm. And that's celebrated. So I think it a, depends on where you are in the country. Right. There's certainly, you know, campuses and stuff where liberal ideas will be the ones that are laughed out of town. And I think, you know, the most popular radio programs in the country are not liberal programs. They're conservative programs. The, you know, mm -hmm. cable, the number one cable station is conservative. Like millennials see that, whether it's through osmosis, just because it is the most popular thing in the country or they're actively seeking it out. And there's a lot of people like, Ben Shapiro and Milo Yiannopoulos, who are millennials, mm -hmm. who are making a career out of it in a way that's relatable to young people, that isn't stuffy like Fox News and Rush Limbaugh, and they're yeah, speaking but, their language. But I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Ben Shapiro and Milo because, you know, when they go to college campuses to speak, they need to get special permitting because yeah. there's going to be riots on the campus. I mean, most notably at Cal Berkeley where Antifa showed up and but shut them even down. even despite all of that, they're still speaking to auditoriums filled with people that are willing to go through all of that. I mean, not right. really. I mean, I would say that they're, they are speaking to groups of people, um, but the volume, I mean, so for example, at Indiana University, I would say the number of college Republicans that are out there actively working is probably one-tenth the number of college Democrats or liberals that are out there openly working. Jackson, would you agree with that? Yeah. Definitely. And I would say that for every university that champions right-wing views, I can name one, which would be Hillsdale College in Michigan, there's a thousand that are on the opposite sure. end of the spectrum. So just numbers. I mean, and if you look at the numbers of liberal speakers that are welcomed into college campuses, it's got to be a hundred to one, both in terms of the number of speakers and in terms of the audiences that come and can comfortably sit in a large auditorium that don't have to fear for their safety and for their lives, that then come to listen to conservative speakers. So it's just a volume issue, right. really. Um, so. Yeah. We have one more topic. So let's see what it is. We can end on this. Oh, this is a good, good late topic to end on. New England Patriots. Will Tom Brady win his sixth Super Bowl? Absolutely. We, this can be our next. <laughs> after, after watching Brady's performance against the Pittsburgh Steelers, absolutely. You know they're currently eleven and three. They already clinched a playoff spot, and they pretty much have AFC home field advantage. This is Jackson's right? audition to be a sportscaster. It's great. And um, and yeah, I I really really think that you know Brady has the tenacity to win one more Super Bowl before he turns age 41, so. Right. Does anyone else have any well-thought-out opinions on this? Well, you know, I love Tom Brady. He went to Michigan. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I love him, too. I think he's a great quarterback. I think New England's got a shot. 
I think they need to work on their uh, defense a little bit. Um, but they've got as good a shot as any team entering the playoffs, and they've got the intangible, which is they've they find a way to win. So, great. I think it could be a uh, if Tom wins six, that's that's going to be awfully tough to beat. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone. This was great. Thanks for the topics, and I'm sure this will be very eye-opening to a lot of people. And I'm hoping that people will find you know. The stuff that you guys talked about, a lot of people are too afraid on the millennial side, as we discussed, to say. So I thought this was very good. So thank you guys. Thank you, honey. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com and you can visit us at campadulthood.com please also find on our website there are links to our patreon page where you can be a subscriber and there are many cool prizes thanks campers we hope that you enjoy your stay at camp adulthood